Exodus chapter 8, page 45. If you're using the Pew Bible, if you're not, you can find that as Genesis, Exodus, the second book of the Bible, should be fairly easy to find. And this is the seventh in our series on the book, in the book of Exodus, and we've been talking about Moses so far. And uh, we have entered into the confrontation with the Pharaoh. This the Pharaoh is not identified by name. The city that the Israelites were building as slave labor was almost certainly Ramesses, and uh, the, uh, and the uh, pyramids were part of that enormous project. There's archaeological evidence, but once again, I would remind you that when the Bible stories are not giving the information, we're not to get overly distracted by that. Um, there is uh, one interesting story from this uh, period that from ancient Near East, East history that is not recorded in Exodus, but coincides with the timing, a contemporary of Moses, you'll remember that Moses was raised in the Pharaoh's home, so he was an adopted, not an adopted, but a foster son of the Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a title, kind of like what Caesar was, so whoever was Pharaoh at the time, according their, to their understanding of the links between heaven and earth, the Pharaoh would be the high priest, but more than that, the, uh, the, a deity who spoke on behalf of the people to the spiritual world. And the Nile River and the animal life, this was polytheism. They all had over time taken on the name, uh, names of gods and became gods. We talked about this already with the confrontation with the Nile River becoming bloody and therefore unusable, that that was a challenge to the great God, the supreme God of nature for them, not the supreme God of humans, that was the Pharaoh himself, and we know that eventually in this series of the ten plagues, the Pharaoh himself and his life is challenged by God to demonstrate to the people of Israel that God, Yahweh God, the God who is revealing himself in this process is in fact the creator God of the universe and revealing that to the people around them as well. God never intended the Israelites to just have him as their God while other people had whatever God they wanted to have. That's a concept of henotheism uh, that many people of that time accepted the fact that there were other gods and the Israelites might have their god. The Egyptians have their god or gods and other nations scattered around the world had their own gods but they were just for them. They were specifically for them but God is demonstrating to Moses and then to the rest of the people of Israel and eventually to the Egyptians that he is the God of the universe, the creator, the final judge. And their opportunity to serve him is not just to reap benefits from him, but to know him and then represent God to the world around them. That was their mission. Not in the same way that we have that mission of representing God to the world around us by 
talking on an individual level about Jesus and about love and the plan of salvation and all of these things that we are so familiar with as Christians, but their mission was, as Israel, was to represent God as a nation collectively to the world so that the people of the world, and this did happen, there are stories later on of this in the Bible, but also from ancient East, Near East history that they were well known as speaking for and representing this particular God. I don't know if you know much of your ancient history, but there are three main lines that are often recognized in the pre-Christ era. One is the Greek influence, which is, in, in, which is intelligence, uh, meaning education, philosophy, the great philosophers like Plato and, and um, Aristotle and others from that period of time were Greek philosophers. So the reasoning path or the reasoning strain of influence from the ancient world came through that. The Romans, it was political organization. Even much of our own society, uh, Americans' history, is based on the Roman political construct, the Republic. Uh, the Roman Republic is uh, a heavy influence historically uh, on down the line to us. But the contribution that the Israelites made, the people of Israel made, and historically this is the third main strain or influence in the world is God. Monotheism and the moral standards that go with that monotheism, meaning there is really only one true God, not a great number of gods or whichever God you pick for your own, but there is one creator, the story from Genesis 1. Uh, which is in the Hebrew, Elohim, God, and in here, God revealed himself as Yahweh. It's a personal name, I am that I am. And it's kind of an interesting name because if somebody asked your name and, and you just say, well, I am, well, they might think you're a little weird. Well, you would be because you have a name, you have a specific place in the human order. God, in giving this name, revealing this about himself, is essentially saying, I am above being named and claimed. I am the creator of all things. You have the privilege of knowing that which is universal and greater than all of the naming, the claiming, and the specificity that goes with that. That's why he used this particular name. It's not a personal name that they even were encouraged to repeat and use on a personal basis. You may know that the pronunciation of Yahweh, the tetragrammaton of four letters of the Hebrew alphabet that were used for God's name, the pronunciation died away over history. And that's why sometimes it was referred to as Jehovah. They didn't know how to say that. And it's only been in recent years that uh, ancient texts have been discovered that showed what the pronunciation most likely was. But the Israelite people, and if you go to a Jewish synagogue today, and they're reading the scripture, the Old Testament, at, say, a service, a funeral, or something like that, they won't say this name. It's a sacred name to the Jewish, the practicing Jewish people. They substitute Adonai. You're reading along, and, the, and it says Yahweh, or uh, the Lord, in our translations, and the rabbi will say Adonai instead. And that's because they still won't say that name. It's considered sacred. It's the personal name for God. Well, when Jesus revealed himself as the Son of God, that's the personal side of it. This is God saying, 
you can reach me directly, not through a pantheon or a whole bunch of gods as in polytheism or through the God of the Hebrew people who was separated out by blood sacrifices and holy of holies and things that kept a distance, but now personally you can get to know him. We're going to pick up in chapter 8 the uh, story. We're going to jump a chapter here or most of a chapter dealing with the plagues. I don't, because I don't want to uh, uh, deal with the ten plagues, and I should remind you once again that the word plague is what's often referred to uh, because of the generic meaning of the term. It's a plague upon the people or a plague upon the land. It is not the black plague or the bubonic plague, which is now a more specific name as used in the English language, but ten things that happened as a challenge to the gods of the Egyptians and to demonstrate the power of God. In verse 25 of chapter 7, seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Remember the first one was the water turning to blood. In verse 1 of chapter 8, then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed and into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will go up on you and your people and all your officials. This is essentially a prophecy. Uh, but we don't think of this as a prophecy, but this is God telling him through Moses ahead of time exactly what is going to happen. And this is one of the marks of true miracles and accurate prophecies that come from God. Uh, there's enough detail there that you can see, well, this has really got to work. Now, you could have a plague of frogs at any time you wish. Um, I don't know if anybody's here has experienced a plague of frogs. A plague of frogs or plague of frogs. Uh, but we have, uh, Marjorie and I experienced a plague of salamanders one time. Uh, we were living in North Dakota in a very wet spring. And when the sun came out, all of a sudden the salamanders hatched. And since our basement had about a foot of water in it, it was a wonderful place for salamanders. You couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't walk around the yard. You couldn't drive around the yard without making mush out of salamanders and there really was no way around it it seemed a little bit uh, weird but it was almost like a biblical plague feeling to it and I know that people have experienced this with snakes and whatnot occasionally but what if somebody came along and said to you this is exactly what's going to happen with these frogs and not think of your kneading troughs where you make the bread there's going to be frogs in it and gave you an advance notice of what this is going to be and I will point this out because this is going to come up several times in terms of these events being potentially natural events. But when they become controlled and predicted in this way, there's something entirely different. If I said to you that um, I had a sign from God and it was a snowflake coming down the chimney of my wood stove uh, and that's a sign from God, you'd say, well, that's pretty weird uh, to take that as a sign because snowflakes can come down chimneys all the time. Well, what if I said that it was July 4 and the stove was on burning and a snowflake came down 
20 foot of chimney, or 25, which is about how long ours was uh, in our former house, and came out of the stove and landed on my dinner plate while I was eating. Now, there's still a snowflake. And then what if I said that God had told me last night in a dream this is exactly what's going to happen? Would you see it differently? Yeah, you would. I think a lot of the criticisms about miracles in the Bible are often based on things that really are not very honest criticism. Because most of the miracles in the Bible could take place naturally. That's not an argument against it. If God, if, if, if you discovered me over in Portland on a Monday afternoon, that wouldn't be a miracle. But what if you discovered me in Portland on a Monday afternoon knowing that I was right here at that same time or something like that? Then you'd say, wow, that's, that's really amazing. There's nothing unnatural about the event except when it's predicted and controlled. The only truly unnatural event in the Bible that was a miracle was the resurrection of Jesus. All of the other things, healings and so on, they can take place, they happen, but what if they take place at, on command or on demand, if they take place on prediction? This is what the story is about. God intervening, not in doing things that cannot be done, in the physical world, but in doing things that clearly point to him as making a statement. And this is what happened here with the frogs. In verse 5, So the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Stretch out your hand and your staff uh, over the streams and the canals and the ponds and make frogs come out of the, uh, up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts they also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. <clears throat> Verse 8 is a clue that the magicians didn't do such a great job when making frogs. Because if the Pharaoh <clears throat> had seen his magicians do it, he never would have asked Moses to take away the frogs. He would have asked his own musicians on staff to take away the frogs. Uh, here, Pharaoh asked him. This is the beginning of the change in the Pharaoh, uh, what we're calling repentance. And I want to follow this theme of repentance a little bit through these plagues. As, uh, this is the first reference that the Pharaoh ever makes to the Lord. He starts to recognize that their God is doing these things and has power. So he asked him, pray to the Lord or pray to Yahweh and uh, your God and, uh, and take care of these frogs, will you please? And, uh, and so verse 9, Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs except for those that remain in the Nile. And, and tomorrow, Pharaoh says, so Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people, and they will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought to Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, in the fields, and they were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had predicted or said. 
Now, there's an interesting feature of this where we see this many times in the Old Testament, intercession. Uh, here, Moses interceded for the Pharaoh. Now, he didn't owe him that. This is what is sometimes referred to as prayer evangelism. Uh, pray for people. Now, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I have, over the years, visited many people in a hospital or under adverse circumstances who were not part of the church that I was pastoring, uh, were not, um, in many cases, in some cases, even not Christians, and I knew they were not Christians. But one of the things that almost never gets turned down is if uh, I offer to pray for them. I think that's an interesting and useful way to influence people. You can pray for them. Now, I know that people will sometimes say this. Um, just last summer I had somebody, when I said that, um, in front of some people, the person said, no, I don't want you to pray for me. Uh, I wasn't offering to lead them to Christ or anything. I said, do you mind if I just pray? And the person said, no. And that's okay. I'm not offended by that. Uh, but and I know that sometimes when young people are in a state of rebellion or reaction against their parents who might be Christian, they might tell their parents, don't pray for me. And so, so just do it anyway. You don't have to obey your children. You don't... Uh, necessarily have to do it in front of them but I think this is okay and I think that we're given an example here from Moses. Moses had no power over the Pharaoh. He didn't threaten him. He didn't warn him that well you better do what we say or you're going to get worse yet even though God had told them that's what's going to happen. He said well I'll pray for you and the Pharaoh said okay and he did. He prayed, and he prayed fervently. He prayed that God would work through this and work to their good, work the result that God had said was on the table. In verse 16, So then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon men and animals. All of the dust through the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And the gnats were on men and animals. And the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Now I should say a word about the, well, the word gnats. Uh, that kind of stands out because we don't talk about gnats very much here. In some parts of the country, you might, uh, I don't know if we've got no seams around here, or we've lived in places where you have mosquitoes, bees, and no seams. No seams were just tiny little bugs that really irritated you. You just couldn't, uh, uh, couldn't even see them. That's why they're called no seams. But, and gnats are often thought to be that. But actually, in the Hebrew language, gnat is a general word for tiny insects. Um, I think there's a pretty strong consensus here that these were most likely mosquitoes. Uh, now, mosquitoes aren't really uh, that small that you can't see them, and in some places uh, they're so large, I, I don't know which state it is, I think it might be Alaska where a mosquito is a state bird, but uh, they do get big some places. But if you're in a swarm of mosquitoes, uh, you know it. You know it, and if you don't have the right kind of stuff to put on, lotion to put on or clothes to put on or whatever it is, uh, you're going to be destroyed or you're going to be affected by it negatively. And I think it is more accurate probably for us to think of these as 
swarming mosquitoes uh, appearing everywhere. And one more I'm just going to draw your attention to, and then we'll draw some points from this. The Lord said to Moses, get up earlier in the, early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. But on that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord said, Dense swarm, and the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. And throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. And then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God here in the land. But Moses said, That would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, as soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord. And tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only be sure that Pharaoh does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. So then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. You notice a negotiation stage. I don't know if you're familiar, familiar with um, a writer from a few years back called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Uh, she wrote on grief and dying. And she pointed out that people go through five pretty normal steps at the loss of something or someone in their lives. And bargaining is one of them. After you get, uh, after you get past the denial stage, then bargaining begins and many people have been in this position I'm sure you have at some time Lord if you'll uh, this 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 I don't want this to happen to me if I change this if I do this will you please take this away and uh, that's a common experience in human life uh, and when someone loses a loved one frequently it's as much as as good as Lord make this a dream when I wake up I want that person there again and what do you want me to do? I'll change my life. I'll do anything you ask. This is the bargaining stage that the Pharaoh is in right here. But then he changed his mind again after he got what he wanted. And that is a frequent problem of bargaining. People in combat, uh, in danger of losing their lives or in accidents or something, are often in a situation. You're sure you've heard of people who said, Lord, I'll, I'll even be a preacher uh, or if you're Catholic, a priest, if you'll just save my life, get me through this, get me back out of this foxhole and back home, and then I will change my life and I will dedicate my life to you. Nine out of ten times, they don't do it. Nine out of ten times, it's kind of like this. And you know what? I don't th I'm not sure the Lord even wants them to do it. 
I don't think that that kind of motivation is good enough to do a good job in those positions anyway. But nevertheless, it's at least part of the process. And I see a progression here, don't you? The Pharaoh is working toward the end. For him, he never makes the final conversion. But he reaches a stage of repentance and then goes back on it when the pressure's off. But he's at least starting down the path of recognizing that he better knuckle under the, uh, down to the God of the universe or he's going to have some serious problems. The principle of that, of course, is obvious in our relationship with God, that he really is the God of the universe and uh, we can bargain with God and we have the same patterns that we see in our own lives that when the pressure's off, we go back to whatever we were doing before uh, or we need to be convinced Sometimes it's not that easy to be convinced. Some people are convinced quicker than others, but sometimes the ones that come to the conviction the hard way, the repentance, are uh, maybe more convinced when it's all said and done. I've uh, included in your insert here a little article. I want to read that for you as a way to conclude the subject because I want to focus in on repentance. Next time we get to this passage, We'll talk about idolatry, and then we'll talk about uh, miracles, those other themes that appear here. But right now I want to talk about de uh, repentance here. I think repentance is a poorly understood concept. Most of the time when you, uh, you might see a cartoon with a guy standing out there with a billboard saying, Repent, the end is near. And mostly that's done as a joke. I think there might be people that still do that. But, and I've seen a few billboards with that on it, repent. Uh, but I don't think most people know what it means. It's actually used more as a joke nowadays than anything else. But it's a very important concept in the Bible and in daily life. So if you'll just follow with me here. Defining repentance. Repentance is the Bible's word for turning around or changing your mind. We can feel bad or even guilty without even repenting at the point where we stop defending ourselves and give in to God's voice and calling and then act on it, we have repented. Repentance is not just a Christian concept but is the basis of calls for change in society, what parole boards and judges are looking for in criminals, and what your political opponent thinks you should do with your ideas. Far from being a negative concept, repentance is the very essence of free will and the dignity of being human. Conversion requires repentance as part of the process. Just giving assent to God or Jesus will do nothing but add another God to your collection. Turning from whatever you formerly believed to genuine belief in the Creator God and His self-revelation requires a conscious change in outlook. This, in turn, requires active turning around or repentance and an honest admission to God that you want to go the new way now. Anything less than this downgrades the dignity of who we are as humans with the right to choose and reap consequences. Repentance from sin is needed even if we already believe in the true God. It is taking full and personal responsibility for our own actions and attitudes and then admitting as much to God. Sin is the biblical word for real offenses to God and to others. So with repentance we admit guilt and readiness to turn from it. And when we confess something as sin, we are set free to be forgiven and to start over with a clean slate. And when we confess to God that we are sinners in need of redemption, we have opened the door to spiritual rebirth and cleansing. 
Remorse is a feeling of regret for what you've done and is a sign of true repentance, but it has no atonement value and cannot serve as a substitute for repentance and confession to God. Remorse can also be confused with disappointment over getting caught. Willingness to turn around with actions and to accept the consequences is what makes it honest repentance rather than just remorse. Restitution is the willingness and the effort to make something right that caused pain or other problems to someone. Jesus has taken care of our restitution before God, but there are consequences here on earth to deal with. If damage can be repaired or relationships restored, our willingness to do that, or at least try, is a mark of true repentance. Takeaways for life number one. Some differences are not reconcilable. Disagreement is a sign of respect, not hate. We didn't really touch on that point, so I don't want to spend any time on this as a takeaway. Next week we'll do that. Number two, being determined and strong-willed can be a virtue, but stubbornness and pride are close cousins. This pharaoh was um, very determined and strong-willed, but he was um, nevertheless proud and stubborn. Number three, one reason for repeated failure is a lack of repentance. Sin is not a four-letter word, learn to use it. I think sometimes that's true when people are struggling with the same problem for a long time, whether it be addiction or some other habit or some, something that uh, produces failure. What's your attitude about sin? Uh, I mean, there are lots of ways to deal with problems in life, but sometimes it's a matter of, we've got to get this cleaned out of my, your life before you're going to have any kind of victory and spiritual health. Enabled, enabling you to walk straight. Number four, beware of slacking when the pressure is back off. Take steps to maintain. This is what the Pharaoh did. As soon as the pressure was off with the gnats and the frogs and the flies, he went back to the old way. And um, I think I've observed this many times in people. Uh, in our, one of our former churches, uh, in the one most recent before this, we had a lot of people from the community that would appear in church for a while and uh, sometimes when that happens here being there's a lot of other churches around it's because they're trying out a church and then they go to another one so we don't really know what's going on but in that community I always knew what was going on and there were sometimes a few occasions several actually where people would appear in church and then I would know something went wrong in their lives and three or four weeks later the pressure's gone they disappeared, not because they went to another church, but because they just didn't need God anymore. They needed God to rescue them, and they needed to make some kind of deal with God, but then they're gone. And then something else happens. There they are again. And it got to be, you could almost predict it. It isn't really funny, because it can be tragic in the long run, but it was kind of funny in a way that you could, uh, other people would say, oh, something must have gone wrong in so-and-so's life. There they are. Uh, showed up in church again. They're giving God a bargain. I'll go to church and I'll get squared away. But after a little while, the pressure's off. The pain's gone. They're back to whatever it was doing before. Now, that is a natural human problem, but there is a way to solve that, is to take the steps when the pressure's not there to get your act together and your life together with God. Number five, God is patient but won't be played for a sucker. Now it might be a good time to repent. Hmm. Anything in your life you need to repent of, call sin. 
give it to God. It may not magically disappear. But you start with this, saying, Lord, I know this is wrong. I give it up to you. Why don't you stand, join me in prayer. And uh, Father, we confess it's easy to be slackers when things are going okay or well for us. And when there are problems, intensity of life catches up to us. We recognize our need for you, but just like Pharaoh, when the pressure's off, and the Israelites later on in this story, when the pressure was off, it's easy to sink back in to whatever our values were and our patterns were, our habits were before. And God, we give those things up to you now. We may not be in a state of panic or fear or even depression. But we give those things up to you now and invite you to work in those areas. We know that life has ups and downs. And we know that our passion for you has ups and downs. But we're asking you to stay with us, to not let us go, to prod us, to encourage us, to send people into our lives and where necessary, even some painful things that will motivate us to stay walking with you because we know that in the long run, all of those things are better and all of those things can be used by you to point us in the right direction. So we're offering ourselves in sincerity for that. We don't know exactly what the result may be, but we do know who you are and what you want in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.